Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and James Forsyth. At 6.30pm tonight, the palace announced that Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II had passed away. Age 96, this brings an end to a 70-year reign. James, what comes next? I think the most remarkable thing and the greatest testament to her reign is how uncontroversial what comes next is. What comes next is that her son succeeds her as monarch. And I think it is a remarkable achievement in this. She's the longest reigning monarch in British history, and there has been so much political, social and technological change during her reign. But despite all of that, the idea of monarchy is so uncontroversial that there isn't even a moment of hesitation before Liz Truss announced on Downing Street that we must all support King Charles III. And I think what that tells us is the consummate skill with which she has performed the role of constitutional monarch. She died today with the three of us, all, I think, fairly well-informed people, having no idea what she thought about almost any political issue. You know, there have been two moments, I think, when we've had a glimpse of what her private opinions were. One was the Sunday Times story about her frustration with Margaret Thatcher over sanctions on South Africa, and the other was some informed speculation about her Euroscepticism. But I think you have to remember that what made those so noteworthy is how rare they were. She kept her opinions to herself. And you said in your in the intro Katie rightly, but it's a daily politics podcast. In some ways, the Queen's immense achievement was that she always rose above politics. And, you know, I think the other absolutely remarkable thing is she has had the longest reign in British history. And, you know, as we sit here tonight, you can point to there have been a misstep description of, you know, an Annas Horribilis. But you compare those to Queen Victoria, the previous longest reigning monarch in British history, you compare that to the bedchamber crisis or her withdrawal from public life after the death of Prince Albert, and you realise what a remarkable, successful reign we have just witnessed. And she has created the benchmark for constitutional monarchy. I think all future monarchs will be judged against the standard that she has set. And... As we sit here tonight, on her 21st birthday, she promised that she dedicated her life to our service, the service of the people of Britain and the Commonwealth realms. And it is testament to that, I think, that this week she has invited her 15th Prime Minister to form a government. The fact that she did that just days before she died is a testament to a life dedicated to service. Fraser, in the last few minutes, we've we've heard from Liz Truss, who, as James mentioned, one of the Queen's last acts was to recognise as Prime Minister. What has she been saying? What tone did she go for on this? Liz Truss was one of the last people to meet the Queen. Um, she was there when she became the Queen's 15th Prime Minister. And after that, we saw this beautiful picture of the Queen, the last picture ever released of her, sitting in Balmoral with a fire. And that picture was so beautifully evocative because it made you just remember that this is a woman whose first prime minister was Churchill, who has sat there with weekly audiences of politicians over the years and has amassed so much wisdom. And I'm not, you know, and James, you say she stayed above politics. I would put it slightly differently. I would say she stayed above party politics. 
But she did, just after I became editor, she gave a speech to the United Nations where she gave what I thought was a profoundly political insight, an insight which could only have come from somebody who has sat there listening to prime ministers every single week for decades. And I'll read you the um, the great quote. She said that she'd witnessed so much change over the years. She'd sat there listening to the best laid plans of prime ministers, what they wanted to do next. And she noticed a trend. She says, I've witnessed great change, much of it for the better, particularly in science, technology and social attitudes. But remarkably, many of these sweeping advances have come about not because of governments, committees, resolutions or central directives, although they've played a part, but instead because millions of people around the world had wanted them. So what she was effectively saying was that it doesn't really matter who's prime minister and who's not. I mean, not in the long term. They might, for example, if you take the decriminalisation of homosexuality in the 60s, that came in the Queen's words, because millions of people thought it was right for the change, not because of some great Pankhurst-style prime minister. She had her faith in the courage and the character of the British public. And the British public, in turn, had their faith in the courage and the character of the monarch. Right now, it's funny, I was speaking to John MacArthur, who's an American news editor of Harper's Magazine, and I was just speaking to him earlier. He just, just happens to be in Britain here at a time where obviously we're going through quite a great historical change. And I was saying to him that I think that one of the most beautiful explanations of the potency that the monarchy holds in British life is explained not by anything the British government has come out with, but it's a document that the Canadian government publishes. We should remember, of course, that the Queen is monarch, not just of Britain, but of 15 other countries. There are hundreds of millions of people around the world tonight mourning the loss of their head of state. And in this document, which Canada gives to its its new citizens as immigrants, they have to sign an oath of allegiance to the Queen. They have to swear to be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of Canada, her heirs and successors. And the document explains to, let's say, I don't know, some Somalian guy who's come to the Queen to become a Canadian citizen, why he might be pledging allegiance to the Queen. And I'll read out what it says here in the Canadian notebook, because I think this explains the magic of the monarchy. In Canada, it says, we profess our loyalty to a person who represents all Canadians and not to a document such as a constitution, a banner such as a flag or a geopolitical entity such as a country. In our constitutional monarchy, these elements are encompassed by the sovereign, the Queen. It's a remarkably simple yet popular principle. Canada is personified by the sovereign just as a sovereign is personified by Canada. And I think that that statement just sums up precisely why Her Majesty's death will be felt personally and profoundly right across the country tonight. This, isn't, this is not the same league of politics. This is the relationship which we've got with the monarchy. And it's something which defies the logic, I think, of politics. I think Fraser also touches on a very important point, the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth was not an inevitable institution. It is an institution that the Queen has fostered but she has done a huge amount to to build up. And I think that when the historians come to write about this remarkable reign, one of the things they will concentrate on is how she created this immense instrument that, you know, many people would have thought that when she ascended the throne, 
there was still a huge amount of empire that Britain had not decolonized from lots of places in the world. I think lots of people would have said, oh, you can't do that and maintain these ties and connections. What she showed is that the kind of classic zero-sum game that people might have thought of didn't need to be the case. And I don't think that members of the Commonwealth today feel that that is in some... You know, no one feels that that is in some way being under the imperial yoke or anything like that. It's a clearly voluntary organisation. But it clearly enriches the lives of its members. And I think it becomes a hugely valuable organisation. I think you know, if you look at the challenges the modern world faces, this is somewhere where rich and poor countries can come together and talk on, on a same level. And I think you look at the environmental challenges, the climate change challenges facing the world, you, know, you see that the Commonwealth is a uniquely valuable organisation in dealing with those. And there was nothing inevitable about the Commonwealth existing in its present form. It exists in its present form because the Queen put huge amounts of her own personal capital into this and used her convening power to hold this thing together. And there were moments in her reign when the Commonwealth, I don't think, would have held as an institution if it wasn't for her own personal convening power. Fraser, Britain will now enter 10 days of mourning. What do we expect in terms of how that will look and feel? Well, there's going to be no parliamentary business, for example, not tomorrow, not the rest of next week. The Queen's coffin's going to lie in repose at Holyrood Palace in Edinburgh, and there's going to be a service of reception, the first service of reception at St Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh. Then, after that, the coffin is taken to London, where it's going to be met by the Prime Minister and some other ministers. And then there will start probably the most visible public spectacle here, the lying in state in Westminster Hall, where anybody can come and pay their respects to the Queen. So that's going to happen probably for about six days, starting on Wednesday next week. Now, when that ends, probably on Saturday, then there's going to be a state funeral held at Westminster Abbey on the Sunday. And then after the funeral, the burial will take place in Windsor Castle in the grounds later that day. So there's going to be... The whole country's life is going to change in the next few days. And I think there will lots to be focused on this coronation of King Charles III will take place quite some time from now. I mean, the, the crown does pass invisibly but immediately to the king. But the actual event of the coronation might not even take place until next year. There's no immediate rush for that kind of thing. I think there's a lot for the country to take in, a lot to reflect on the treasures of the past. And when the time comes, then we'll turn the focus and we'll start to say once again the anthem and the prayer, God save the King. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening.